Hey, listeners. Welcome back to When Bad Things Happen to Good People. This is a podcast about censorship and the arts. My name is Todd Sullivan. My co-host, as always, is Oren Barter. Hello, everybody. And today we are talking about the epilogue to the autobiography of Malcolm X, as well as the 1992 movie by Spike Lee. Here we are, Oren. We've finished our first book. We did. How does that feel? It feels great, and it was a really good read. Yeah, it was, and um, I I feel fantastic um, being at sort of the conclusion of this book. I know we have one more uh, live episode planned when we will uh, sort of talk about the book overall, but this is our last. We, we finished reading the book now. It's complete. It's done. And uh, I'll admit, um, when we started this podcast, I was a little bit concerned about um, my ability to follow through. And it was concerning because I didn't want to start a thing and then just have it kind of fizzle out. Um, I know, like, I I, I do struggle sometimes with uh, depression. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I was concerned... You know, along with that, there are days where it just seems like I can't get anything done. I can't accomplish anything. And I was afraid that that would sort of rear its ugly head when it came to um, producing this podcast. That, you know, we'd, we'd try to schedule a recording session. Mm-hmm. And on that day, I, I just wouldn't be able to pull myself together to do it. And that's that did kind of happen once early on. There was one episode that I think we had to sort of postpone. And one of the reasons was that my head wasn't in the game for it. But for the most part, I think this has had the opposite effect on me that um, getting together every couple of weeks to record this podcast has proven to be a benefit to my mental health. Um, it ends up being kind of a social experience for, for me to sit down and, and spend an hour or an hour and a half talking to you about, you know, what we've read. And I think um, this has definitely been a benefit to my mental health rather than a detriment. So I'm super excited about that. And, and, uh, uh, that's, what? that's awesome. No, that's awesome. That was a, that was a <laughs> laugh of happiness. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'm, 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 I'm glad we've been doing this. Uh, glad we're done. Uh, looking forward to jump into the next book, which uh, I, I'm not going to tell anyone what it is yet, but we have chosen the next book. I think maybe we'll uh, reveal it in a couple of weeks when we do the live episode uh, talking about the whole of Malcolm X. Um, so that's a, that's a tease for anyone who wants to get the, <laughs> Uh, the the live r- release of what the uh, the next read is going to be. So, um, yeah, how's things in your corner these days? Um, not too bad. I I've got a a job interview on Monday. Oh, that's exciting! Good luck. Yeah, hopefully that'll go good. And uh, I wanted to swing back to like what you were saying about this being good for your mental health and mine, especially mm-hmm. during you know, the, the pandemic too, right. Um, having the ability to actually have a conversation with somebody and not be stressed about it, <laughs> worried about where your, like your head is and, you know, comparison to them. And are they talking too loud? And did, was that a piece of spit that just landed on my face? You know. <laughs> yeah. It, I think, um, with everyone sort of being way more locked up and, and separated during the, the pandemic, Having any kind of social outlet is is really great, and so um, like yeah, talking to you has been great, and hopefully, you know, people who've been listening along have maybe felt um, like they're engaged in in this conversation with us. That's all, that would be nice, I think. Yeah. Um, one interesting piece of news before we uh, dig into uh, the material for this week: um, Audible just announced within the last week or two that they are going to be bringing the autobiography of Malcolm X to audiobook for the first time ever. It's never been available as an audiobook. Oh, really? Um, yeah, so the, for the first time uh, in its 55-year history of, of existing, uh, it's going to be available as an audiobook, and it will be narrated by Lawrence Fishburne. Yes. Um, awesome. Which is very cool. Um, great choice, I think. 
so yeah, if, if you're someone who prefers to consume their books through their uh, ear holes rather than their eye holes, this is a, <laughs> uh, a great chance to uh, check out this book. I don't know. Um, it's obviously not out yet. They just announced that they'll be doing it. So um, you may have to wait a few months to get your hands on it, but it is coming. Have you ever listened to an Audible audiobook before? I have listened to audiobooks. I don't know if I've ever listened to one through Audible. I find them really, really well produced. Like, yeah, yeah. I've I've thought about signing up. I know they sometimes have like, you know, here's your free trial. You can download like three free audiobooks as a trial. I've thought about signing up for those. Mm-hmm. Um, I find when I've listened to audiobooks in the past, my mind tends to wander, um, and I realize that I've missed out on the last you know, 90 seconds to two minutes of what the book was. And then I have to rewind it and start it again. And, and uh, I think I, I tend to just prefer listening to podcasts when I need to listen to something and you read a book when it's time to read something, but maybe I'll give it another try and it'll, it'll click this time. I should probably cut that out. If we ever want to have audible as a sponsor, eh? <laughs> yeah, we, <laughs> we don't I shouldn't, be like, I shouldn't speak hey, ill of their whole business concept. Audible. Would you, would you like to give us some money? Would you sponsor our podcast after I just dissed the very concept of your business? <laughs> and told people like, yeah, just sign up for the free one. Get a couple books, whatever. Get a couple books and then go back to reading like a normal person. <laughs> no, I, I've talked to a lot of people who um, who do enjoy audiobooks. Uh, you're one of them. Um, and I've heard from a lot of people that it's a, a really great way to consume uh, books because you're able to multitask, right? You yeah, can, well, like, yeah, a lot can... of times when I'm listening to an audiobook, I'm busy with both hands doing something and it's just going kind of in the background and you're right. You do kind of lose your focus a little bit, but it's better than just being stuck in your own head. True. Yeah, for sure. Well, with that off the table, I guess we can uh, jump into discussing the, the, the book that we're here to discuss specifically the epilogue to the autobiography of Malcolm X, which was written by Alex Haley. Um, Both. Well, the book was compiled by Alex Haley from mm-hmm. his interviews with Malcolm X. The epilogue was written by Alex Haley specifically. And I think one of the things I thought was interesting about the epilogue was actually information contained in the epilogue about how the epilogue came to be, uh, which was, you know, how about halfway through the process of kind of interviewing Malcolm and getting the information for the book, uh, Alex Haley negotiated with him mm-hmm. um, for basically permission to include a final uh, section or the epilogue in which he would talk about his experience putting it together. And that would be something that um, Malcolm would not sign off on. Like it wasn't like it would, it wouldn't be run past Malcolm for his permission. It was basically going to be, you know, Alex Haley's raw um, discussion about his experience. So I thought that was interesting that it wasn't necessarily even there from the beginning. And it was something that as, as they went through this process, um, he felt it was necessary or felt that he wanted to communicate how the book came together. Well, and there was so much going on in that interaction between the two guys, like the two of them too, right? Like there yeah. was, like, I could, I could see how after years uh, of talking with him, he'd be like, okay, I want to, yeah. write about my experience with you too. Well, especially because it sounds like it was at least early on, somewhat of a, of a rocky relationship, I believe. Mm-hmm. You know, Malcolm initially said, like, I, I don't trust you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I thought the whole, um, like, I remember, you know, kind of wondering aloud early on in this podcast, what sort of process they had gone through in creating the book, whether or not what we basically were reading was the stories that Malcolm told literally verbatim out of his mouth, um, or whether or not it was sort of edited together from, you know, a little bit from this interview here, a little bit from this interview over here. And from the way it's described in the epilogue, that's what it seems to be, that it was a lot of um, a lot of time spent talking to sometimes only get a little bit of information. And, you know, sometimes the chapters are being put together with a little bit from a story here and then connecting to a little bit of a story from this interview that happened three days later. And so there was certainly, I think, a lot of, of work on the part of Alex Haley in sort of crafting this story in regards to how he wove together all the little bits and pieces that he probably had to work from. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it was interesting to to get that look into how it went together. And as I said, too, um, early on, it seemed like there was a lot of kind of, I don't know if I would say tension, but, um, you know, Malcolm X was participating, but maybe somewhat 
grudgingly. It sounds like, you know, there were times when, um, you know, Haley talks about how difficult it was getting information from Malcolm, how difficult it was to get him um, to, to talk about certain things and how also while they were conversing, uh, Malcolm was keeping notes on little um, scraps of paper and stuff. And like, he was always sort of had two thoughts going on at once. One is the the story he was verbally communicating, but then also thoughts that were going down on, on these notes and how um, Alex Haley started to actually collect those notes and sort of keep them um, to kind of inform the conversations with Malcolm as far as like what else was going through his head at the time that these conversations were going on. Right. And like a lot of the notes that he wrote were like quotes or just little quips. And, and I found yeah. those very interesting because he does list quite a few of them in the epilogue. He does. Yeah. And some of them are, yeah, like super, super interesting. Mm-hmm. So, and I think, I mean, I think we had talked before a little bit before we got to the epilogue about what we expected from the epilogue. And I, for myself, um, went in expecting it was going to be a lot of uh, Malcolm X's death and aftermath. And that wasn't the case. Um, it was morally, sorry, morally, it was mostly focused on the experience of of creating the book and what the collaboration was like and the how their relationship changed and how it started off being maybe somewhat, um, not necessarily antagonistic, but, you know, like I said. Standoffish, said, right? Like, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And how by the end of it, it seemed like, you know, they had become maybe as friendly as it was possible to get with I, Malcolm. I would, I would say that um, just based on my read of the epilogue, I, I would say Malcolm considered him a friend. I think so. I think so. But I mean, there's, I also remember stories from the epilogue and like one that occurred fairly late is there was, I don't remember what the details of the contract was, but there was some, some oh, change yeah. to a contract somewhere. It was, it was uh, for the royalties for overseas sales. Yeah. Right. And, I think it was uh, like Europe sales or something like that. And, and Malcolm needed to sign it. And he didn't trust him, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, he was ahead. like, well, I'll take it to my lawyer. And he put it in his coat. And then they were driving somewhere. And then halfway there, <laughs> he, like when they're like stopped at a stoplight, he pulls it out of his coat and signs it and hands it over to Alex Haley. He's like, okay, fine, I trust you. Or, I think I was, I guess I'll trust you. I guess I'll trust you, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> it was, I mean, in 70 pages, it was interesting to watch that that growth of their relationship and, and hear it told. Um, from Alex Haley's perspective. Um, another thing that I thought was kind of interesting were uh, moments in the epilogue where it seemed like we got a, a glimpse behind the scenes of the specific stories. Um, the one that sort of stands out to me was there was a story sort of early on uh, when he was in the midst of his uh, criminal career and they were, uh, he got a crew together and they were doing the burglary. Right, yep. Um, and he... I don't know if we actually talked about this event in the podcast, but at one point he kind of asserts dominance over one of the members of the crew by playing Russian roulette. And I found myself when I read that anecdote thinking like, did he like, did he fake the guy out? <laughs> um, and, and then of course that comes up in the conversation with Alex Haley in the epilogue where he admits that he palmed the bullet and uh, and didn't actually have one in the chamber when he was playing, or any, in any of the chambers when he was playing um, Russian roulette. And just getting that that glimpse into what actually happened there, um, and that part that wasn't contained in the book, I thought was really interesting. Well, and um, I don't know how you wanted to, if you wanted to talk about the movie separately, but I'd like to jump there real quick. Because I hadn't finished that part of the book when I had watched the movie. And in, oh, and in okay. the movie, it does show that he palmed the bullet. He says it to Shorty. He's like, he's like I had it right here the whole time. And they laugh yeah. and they walk out of the room. And I was, yeah. I remember thinking, like, did I miss that in the story? Because I remember that being a much more <laughs> frightening experience when yeah. I read it. And then, um, yeah. And then I'm, I actually have the page open here. He says, you know this place in the chapter where I told you how I put a pistol up to my head and... Blah, 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 Russian roulette, and he, he paused, and I don't know if, if I ought to tell you this or not, but I want to tell you the truth. I palmed the bullet. I don't know, I just, 
<laughs> I, I, I imagine that conversation and, and him just like smirking. And, yeah. But I think that shows too, like that, that growth of uh, relationship between them now where Malcolm felt that he was able to uh, confide in him the truth of that moment. Right. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that is sort of one of the, the ways where the film kind of deviates a little bit. And we're not quite, I think, into talking about the film yet, but I mean, I will say that there are a lot of, I think what we'll talk about are things where it, it, it deviates, where it's not quite, anyway, we'll get there when we get there. We'll get there. When um, we get there. Do you have any sort of favorite bits that stand out to you from the epilogue or anything that, that sort of sticks in your head? Um, yeah, there was quite a few things here, mostly near the end. Um, just a couple of the notes that we were talking about that Malcolm was writing um, and Alex saying he like would kind of peek and write, write them down in his notes as well. Cause he mm-hmm. thought they were interesting. Um, there was one, he scribbled. This was kind of when him and Elijah Muhammad were, were at odds. And he said, you have not converted a man because you have silenced him. And it's a quote from John, Viscount Morley, I suppose. I have no idea who that is. Um, but I found that interesting. Mm-hmm. And there was another one. It was the same kind of, I think around the same time, there is nothing more frightful than ignorance in action. Uh, I'm going to pronounce this completely wrong. Uh, <laughs> G-O-E-T-H-E. Goate. But I felt like that was very on the nose for... Uh, the political situation in 2020 not to go there again but <laughs> but i mean I, I think we have to because the the political situation in 2020 is part of why we decided to to look at this book too right that's true yeah and so in the closing pages of of the epilogue mm-hmm. um again where sort of earlier on it was a discussion of how they how they how they built the book how it came out of these conversations um you know uh, but as it progressed it seems like you know the the early on pages are take place over a, a you know multiple years as they as they put the book together, mm-hmm. but then as it continues on, it starts to time starts to compress, yeah. and we start to move through periods of weeks and then days as we close into um, Malcolm X's assassination. I found too, um, and maybe you could correct me, but it felt like maybe the timeline was a little bit disjointed at the very end, like it kind of did a little bit of bouncing back and forth. Or was I just not comprehending it completely? I didn't get that sense. Okay. Um, what? I don't know if I can give you specifics. I just, I remember reading it and thinking like, oh, okay, now we're, we're back here again. And then continuing on. Like, it felt like we were constantly getting like right up to the, to the moment. And it felt like we would jump back about a week or a month or. Oh, hmm. that might be the case. Yeah. I don't actually remember it that well right now. Um, I just know that, you know, they talked about, you know, how the violence was, you know, or potential violence was escalating. You know, there there were stories mm-hmm. about where, like, he was driving somewhere and, you know, these cars would cut them off and these guys came out to approach the car. And so their guys got out with shotguns and, yeah. then, you know, the other ones would go back into their car and, and head away and sort of, you know, there was just this, this constant um, I think one, sense of... Sorry, go ahead. No, just sort of this constant sense of dread uh, that you experience in those those final pages because you know what's happening, you know what's mm-hmm. going to happen. the The ending of the book, it's like when you watch Titanic. No one's surprised when the boat sinks, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. You you go into yeah. this book knowing that he dies at the end. So in those final pages leading into it, you know, through those moments of almost violence, um, you really you know feel that that dread that that is coming, and also probably you know as he said himself, you know, he didn't expect to see the finished version of the book. So like he must've had that, that same sort of simmering sense of, of dread. Through oh, could final, you even imagine you know, going through that days. sort of thing? Like, Oh God, absolutely not. No. And the worst part about it. Well, and there is some doubt. I would have been on the run to Alaska or something. Yeah, but he, he, like, he had work to do. Well, I know, I know. Right? Um, I, I don't. So <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if we should talk a little bit about the doubt that was cast on whether or not the main players in his assassination were uh, members of the Nation of Islam. Yeah, and so so there, I think, 
I need to dip into the movie a little bit too in that discussion because okay. one of the things that came out um, in, in those sort of final pages of the epilogue as this violence was or potential for violence was escalating, Malcolm had been known to say on a few different occasions that he he didn't think that it was just the nation of Islam anymore, that some of the things that were happening um, were too big mm-hmm. uh, to have been just from the nation of Islam. But if memory serves me correctly, at no point in the epilogue does it say, or in my mind, even hint at who else could be involved. Um, it Maybe I didn't understand it, but it felt like a little bit of doubt was cast on the police and just the way they handled the investigation. And yeah. the way that things didn't really add up. But I think, like, if you look at the movie, and again, we're we're talking about the movie before we're talking. Maybe we should just sort of mix it all up. But, <laughs> okay. Um, it, it seems to imply in the movie that there there might have been some involvement from government agencies like the CIA or mm-hmm. the FBI. You know, there's a point where um, Malcolm's talking to somebody on the phone, and they show the um, these two, you know. CIA or FBI agents listening in on his conversation. And I think he's even talking at that point about how he doesn't think that it could just be the nation of Islam anymore. And so that conversation connected to the people who are um, eavesdropping on him, you know, definitely tie them together. And Mm -hmm. in, you know, in the years since then, I mean, it's come out that, you know, the FBI, I think it was the FBI had, you know, huge files on Malcolm X and uh, huge files on Martin Luther King Jr. And, you know, there was a lot of investigation being done on those people. Um, So, yeah, I think the film definitely takes it to that point where where Spike Lee is saying um, there's question about whether or not this just came from the Nation of Islam. But I'm also hinting that I think the government was potentially connected as well. Mm Mm-hmm. And I don't think the book goes quite that far. But I do think you're right. There are some comments about the the speed of the police response and things like that. And I'm running into some problems right now, too, I think, because I am running into, like, memory bleed between the book and between the film. Right. At one point, Haley says that, uh, uh, like, there was a police statement about how this was after his death, how they... On I think it was twelve different occasions they had offered protection from like police protection for Malcolm, mm-hmm. um, and uh, Haley stated that that flew directly in the face of everything that Malcolm had told him. Right, his his cries for help were being completely ignored. I mean, maybe not cries for help, but um, he was being told that he was exaggerating or making things up, and and that there was no help for him. So, well, and there was another thing around, um, he had talked about trying to get a permit for a handgun Yeah, and he wasn't sure if he'd be able to, because he had been a convict. Um, and then afterwards, I think someone had asked the police whether or not he'd ever like applied for one. And, and, uh, they said he hadn't. So it's, you know, is that one of those things where maybe he did apply and they just lost the application or did he not actually get around to it? Um, I mean, if you thought a, your life was ending, you, I'd think you'd find time to get around to it. Well, like, you'd think, but I mean, even in his own words, he said that he wasn't sure he'd be able to get one. And so, right. like, if you're already thinking, like, it's probably not going to go through, it's not going to probably top your list of things to do that day, right? Like, it's going to be fairly low down because already you're thinking, like, yeah, they're not going to do it. But it's hard to say, too. Like, it's... Um, it's a, it's a big, he, he said, she said Mm -hmm. of an event that took place 55 years ago or more. Right. So, and, uh, just to quickly jump to the movie again, um, while watching the movie and, and seeing how things were kind of changed up a little bit, you know, made me really, and I, I, I mean, we all know this, that we never know the whole of a story. Mm-hmm. But it really struck home that if I had only watched the movie, I would only have, you know, a partial idea of the story. Mm-hmm. And reading the book, it's 
pretty comprehensive, but there must still be so many things that that we don't know. Um, oh God, yeah. Like uh, I had a point to that. What were we talking about before that? Oh, just about the the he said she said. The he said she said. Yeah. So I mean, we we got we got you know this this snippet of of history of this man and and uh, who knows how many other things were going on in his life and in his head and what other like you say things were going on behind the scenes and who was involved and yeah i mean as comprehensive as the book is you know it's still you know a tiny fragment of of a human life yep you know it's exactly. it's still ultimately a snapshot and then the film from that is like a snapshot of a snapshot and then us talking about it is a snapshot of a snapshot <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah I mean, do we want to maybe trans- transition over to talking about the book now, or uh, there was one last thing I wanted to sure uh, just uh, the did I say the book? I meant the movie. Anyway, go I, ahead. I there you, was one more thing. Yeah, one more thing in the epilogue. Um, Ozzy Davis. I guess yes. he was an actor. I'm not sure who he is. Uh, sorry yeah, he to everybody who knows who he is. Yeah. Um, I guess his his speech at the funeral was probably the most famous one. And I just wanted to read a part of it here, um, which I felt was really... uh, So I'll just go into it. Did you ever talk to Brother Malcolm? Did you ever touch him or have him smile at you? Did you ever really listen to him? Did you ever do, or did he ever do a mean thing? Was he ever himself associated with violence or any public disturbance? For if you did know him, or for if you did, you would know him. And if you knew him you would know why we must honor it. I thought that was really beautiful. Yeah, and that was, that was really great. And yeah, while we're doing that, actually, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I, I had a section of, of his speech as well that I, I had marked. Okay. Um, that I, I, I thought was interesting because it seemed to speak to what was unique about, um, Malcolm's approach to, I don't want to say the civil rights movement because he never really connected himself to that, but still his approach to um, trying to get improved conditions and improved rights um, for the black community in America protocol and common sense require that Negroes stand back and let the white man speak up for us, defend us and lead us from behind the scene in our fight. This is the essence of Negro politics, but Malcolm said to hell with that, get up off your own knees and fight your own battles. That's the way to win back your self-respect. That's the way to make the white man respect you. And if he won't let you live like a man, he certainly can't keep you from dying like one. And it also resonated with me in regards to, like, you know, those criticisms that movements or or groups get where, you know, like, here's a, um, you know, a a Black Lives Matter rally being put together entirely by white people. Mm -hmm. Um, When that's... That's not the the way that sh- anyway. No, I agree. I agree with you. But speaking about um, Ozzie Davis and and his um, his what do they call them when they do the um, is it a eulogy or I think it was yeah it is a eulogy yeah it's a eulogy. Um, they well it wasn't necessarily like a recording from the funeral but he he read his eulogy. Um, at the closing of the film, that was um, that was him, Ozzy oh. uh, Davis, as an actor who read his eulogy uh, in those closing moments of the film. Well, that tied together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, now that we're sort of talking about the film, um, I was really struck by the opening uh, moments, which feature... Um, Basically, you know, audio from one of Malcolm's speeches. I don't know necessarily which one. Um, but as he's as he's talking, the footage cuts between uh, an American flag that is gradually burning up. Which, what a bold and, thing to do in a movie. And, yeah. Um, and then also footage of the police beating of Rodney King in the 1990s. Um the the beating of Rodney King, um, there were four police officers that basically brutally beat this black guy. And the the four police officers 
were acquitted of any crimes. Of course. Uh, and then that led to like massive riots in LA. But one of the reasons it got a lot of news coverage and what probably why the, the officers were ever charged in the first place was because the beating was, was taped on video. A, a, a person who lived nearby where it took place had filmed the whole thing. And so that footage from that beating along with the burning American flag uh, is what we see at the beginning of Malcolm X. Um, and it's, it's such a, a, a profound statement of we haven't, nothing's changed. Right. Yeah. And the movie the was world made, we're in, the movie was made how many years we're in after? Right now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. About 30, 35 years or so, 30 ish. Um, and I, I just, as I was watching it, I was just thinking like, we could re-release this film into theaters today and, you know, have footage of any other sort of, you know, police attack on, on a black person there or footage from Black Lives Matter protests or, um, and it, it's just as, just as the, relevant, the fact yeah. that we've, yeah, the fact that we have made almost no progress is just as factual. Yeah. So yeah, I, I was sixty years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think you know, I mean, obviously, the rest of the movie it, it was really you know well put together, but just those opening moments struck me so hard. Um, I, I guess because of the amount of time that there's been since then, to think that it's it's still no better than it was in you know nineteen ninety whatever when they made that film and when Rodney King was beaten beaten. And it's still really no better than, you know, 1965. Uh, so let's talk about the movie. Um, first of all, um, Denzel Washington is fucking kills this, kills it in this movie. Oh, he kills it in every movie. <laughs> yeah, but guy. this particular, like, he was fucking, he was electric. Yeah. Um, his performance was... Uh, was stellar and there were moments towards the end of the movie where like it i i felt like not it was he wasn't just playing malcolm x it was like a, it was almost a full embodiment mm -hmm. um not that i knew malcolm x in any way shape or form to be able to sort of say yeah that's totally malcolm x but it just it felt like he was inside of the the role the energy felt genuine mm -hmm. yeah it did feel at times even at what was it three hours and 20 minutes? It felt rushed in certain areas, which I guess, I mean, when you're trying to tell an entire person's life that can happen, but like, especially sort of the first third to first half of the movie, it felt like there was stuff that was happening so fast and without kind of any reference, like yeah. if, so many things that if, if I hadn't read the book, I would have no idea what was going on. Yeah. And also like, um, I found like Spike kind of did, uh, double duty with some characters in the movie gave them kind of like additional roles. Well, yeah. Um, like for example, the character that Malcolm meets in prison, who uh, basically teaches him about the nation of Islam, mm -hmm. that character doesn't exist in mm -hmm. the book. Um, he's an amalgamation of multiple characters. Um, because in the book, it was his family that ends up kind of nudging him in that direction. And um, there, his, there was a guy his, in the prison that he liked to talk to that he he liked the fact that he used his words to disarm people. Right. Mm -hmm. He did. But that guy wasn't connected to the he was, Yeah, of he wasn't. And that part was like, I was like, ah, OK, that's yeah. But yeah, those are and there's a, a lot of I shouldn't say a lot, but there's a fair amount of that in this movie where, um, you know, characters are amalgamated or things are simplified. Because mm -hmm. it it eases the runtime, right? It, yeah, it helps. Like you say, you know, like, another one was no, like like you said, like I mean, he only he couldn't have made it five, six, seven hours long. Like there's yeah, there's a there's a moment where it becomes absolutely unfeasible, right? And yeah. it's like you said too. I think when we were just talking uh, together in person, um, it was a little jarring at first, but then as you we went through it, like same thing for me. I kind of got used to it. It's like, oh, okay, this is where he's. He's taking this piece and he's using it to, you know, move the story along. Yeah. But, you know, the, the bit with the, the bullet 
uh, and mm-hmm. the the Russian roulette. That was one. Um, the the way that kind of shit went down between him and West Indian Archie was modified a little bit to streamline that um, part of the story. Yeah. Um, uh, the the white university student that comes and talks to him, she actually just in the movie just came up to him at the campus. Yeah. Where he had that interaction where in re, uh, in the book she actually flew to meet him in person after mm-hmm. she had seen him speak in campus. So yeah. yeah. Just little tweaks. Um, but then there were other things too, like early on uh, in the film. In fact, it's like one of the first things that happens um, when he gets his conch. Mm-hmm. Um, if I hadn't read the book, I'd have no idea what was going on there. Right. Um, and also, didn't he get his conch, his first conch, just in an apartment? He didn't get it at a, at a barbershop. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't remember that. And then, yeah, the um, another thing that got uh, changed quite a bit, and again, it was probably the streamline things, was his arrest. They, the conditions of his arrest are completely different, but they also use it as a way to to pull in one of the more amusing stories from the book, which is um, kind of the conch almost gone wrong. Where, um, and so I guess, I mean, here I am criticizing the film for doing a thing without explaining it when I'm not sure we've ever discussed much what the conch, what a conch is, but it's a, it's a process, um, using lye and other things. Yeah. Um, Some chemical and some starch. To chemically straighten, um, the sort of the naturally kinky element of a, of a black person's hair. Um, and it was done at that time to sort of straighten it and make it appear more white and therefore make them appear um, more visually palatable. But because of the lie that was used in it, you had to sort of keep it in your hair as it was kind of burning, because lie will burn you, um, uh, kind of until the last minute that you couldn't take it anymore. Um, well, I think it was the heat that straightened the hair. Right? Probably. So, like, instead of, like, nowadays, people use a straightening iron. But, they, yeah, I think they put this chemical in your hair to react and produce heat right on top of your head. It must have been excruciating. So, you, you would keep it on your head for as long as you could possibly stand it in order to get the hair as straight as possible, and then you would wash it off. Um, but there was this one instance where I, I think it was in the winter and the pipes had frozen. And so, when they went to wash it off, um, they turn on the sink, nothing comes out. Run into the bathroom sink, nothing comes out. And Malcolm eventually had to just dunk his uh, head in the toilet yeah. bowl. And that was an amusing anecdote in the book. It, it didn't really have to do with anything, but they brought that that story over and attached that to the moment where he gets arrested in the film. So, like, mm. he's got his head in the toilet when the cops show up. And haha, that's funny. Except that's not how he was arrested. You know, he was arrested um, trying to get the that watch repaired or whatever. Right. Yeah, that's right. So that was another, you know, it was a streamlining thing because you don't, didn't have to go into all this story about the watch and the pawn shop or the repair shop and everything else. And they also managed to include a fun anecdote. So, I mean, you can see the choices they made, but it's always... I think because I, I, I watched the film so close to having read the book, it just seemed really weird to see these moments that, assuming that the book is correct, and I don't see why it, it wouldn't be, that are that are objectively not what happened. You know, this is supposed to be, I mean, I guess it's based on a true story, but it's just so weird to see things that didn't happen. Yeah, no, <laughs> or I at least you. didn't happen the way they happened. And if you hadn't read the book, like you'd have no idea. Yeah, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have understood what was going on with the conking, or um, it felt like there were a lot of moments early on that I wouldn't have necessarily kind of like everything was happening so fast and so, w- without much explanation. It felt like I was being propelled through this stuff that I don't know. I felt disconnected from. Did you end up enjoying the film though, or do you think that feeling kind of perpetuated until the end? No, uh, I did enjoy the film very much. Um, I would say from about somewhere between a quarter to a third of the way through, um, I felt like the pace slowed down to the point where it it was more normally paced. It didn't feel so rushed, um, and it felt like everything that was going on made more sense. 
But that might just be because that's the point where I kind of got over that feeling of things are different. This is weird. And I just kind of was in a mode of going with it. But I did like it. I enjoyed it very much. Yeah, I did too. And like you said, Denzel was amazing. And there's, um, I haven't watched, I'll admit, I haven't watched a lot of Spike Lee's films, but the few that I've seen, um, he's got a kind of a signature shot that's that's really iconic that he uses in, maybe not all of his films, but a lot of them. And it's this, this um, it's, it's called a double dolly. And the effect is basically of someone gliding forward. Um, so there's no, like, you don't see them move up and down as they're walking. It's just the camera is gliding backwards as the person in front of the camera is gliding towards the camera. It's all sort of one single um, seamless movement. Oh, okay. And it's in Malcolm X, it's used as Malcolm is walking to the auditorium where he's going to be assassinated. And it it gave the scene, I think, a, a, a sense of inevitability. Um, this I, this feeling that this man is um, is moving towards a destiny that he can't. Yeah, like he's he kind of moving, can't avoid. He's kind of being moved. He's not moving. He's being moved. Yeah, towards towards his destiny and also towards you know um, history. It was also interesting to see. Um, Oh, there's an actor who is kind of showing up in a lot of things as a as a villain these days. I think I know who you're talking about. Um, I think he I was think one of the shooters, right? Too. Yes. Yeah, I almost didn't recognize him. I knew him from yeah, Community. Hang on. hang on, let me get his his name so I okay. can talk about him without sounding dumb. <laughs> ah, come on, Todd. Let's be honest. No, I'm just kidding. Giancarlo Esposito. Jim. Carlo Giancarlo Esposito. Uh, he was one of the shooters, um, uh, one of the assassins. Uh, he, I know him best from um, Breaking Bad. Uh, he played right. um, Gus Fring in, in Breaking Bad. Um, but he's also popped up recently. Um, he's like one of the top level guys uh, in Vought in The Boys. Um He's oh, Darth something right. or other. That's he's right. He's Darth something or other in the Mandalorian. Um, he's kind of Hollywood's go-to guy if you need a um, a stoic, well-groomed, intelligent bad guy. evil guy, intelligent bad guy. Yeah, um, and you know, obviously, he had. I shouldn't say obviously. Some people come to acting late in their life, but um, it makes sense that he would have had you know a long career that where he just maybe wasn't the forefront of, of people's television screens. But it was so weird to see, you know, this performer who I've gotten to know as someone in his you know, late fifties, early sixties, um, show up probably in his late twenties, early thirties. Um, and it was one of those, like, I did have to Google it to be sure that it was him. Yeah. I was pretty sure. Yeah. Like I, I had the same, but I know him from community as uh, Pierce Hawk, Hawkthor Hawthorns. Yeah. Hawthorne's brother. Half brother. Mm, okay, um, that's when I was first um, I didn't introduced. Watch to him. all of Community, so I may have missed those seasons. But yeah, I barely like I like like you say I was watching. I was like, ah, hey, is that? And then he was gone. I was like, ah, was it? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think overall, I would say if you if you're curious about the life of Malcolm X, um, there are probably worse ways to you know, get to know his story than by watching the film. Although I did also read there was a documentary made about him in the seventies. That is apparently really, really very good. Um, and in fact, I've seen some like reviewers of the Spike Lee film say that uh, you, you get a better understanding of him through the documentary rather than the Spike Lee film. Um, and interestingly, the documentary I believe was pr produced by the same guy who had owned the rights to the autobiography of Malcolm X. And part of the reason that he put the documentary together was because he was, he was struggling to get a film adaptation of the autobiography off the ground. Cause they tried for years and years and years and years to get it done. Oh, okay. Um, and I guess something else that I discovered from like Googling things, um, Denzel Washington had played Malcolm X 
uh, on stage in a, in a in a show. I don't remember what the show was called, but he had played Malcolm X prior to being cast as Malcolm X in the film. So, you know, okay. came at it with even some experience. Um, and he had been attached through at least one other director. Like, sorry, he had been cast as by, by one director um, who then eventually stepped down because there were a lot of people saying it needed to be made by a, a black filmmaker um, who eventually was Spike Lee. And I do think... Um, I do think Spike Lee made a really good film, and I do think, you know, politically, Spike Lee is probably a great choice for, you know, that sort of, you know, that story. But I also think if you really want to, you know, if you really are interested in getting to know um, who Malcolm X was, you can't go wrong with actually reading the autobiography. You're not going to get as much out of the movie. Yeah, definitely. Another weird thing for me, actually, I guess, is it felt like, um, well, it felt like the the relationship between him and his wife um, felt more romantic in the movie yeah, than it did. In the yeah, play. that's right. I think I mentioned that to you when we were, we were kind of watching it Offset about the same time. And I yeah. sent you a message. I was like, I don't remember there being this much romance in the book. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> I'm pretty sure we commented on I think it was maybe second or third episode that we did when he asked uh, Sister Betty to marry him. He just picks up the payphone. They've been on one yeah. kind of like quote unquote date and he's just like well i guess we should get married <laughs> yeah exactly exactly but and then, then there was another I, scene in the movie where they um and i can't remember what it was over but they had they had a huge fight and i remember watching that scene and thinking this doesn't feel like well first of all it doesn't match any scene in the book mm-hmm. um and it doesn't even feel like the way that the book portrayed their relationship um, and apparently that's a scene th- that never took place. Um, uh, Malcolm X's wife, you know, sort of said afterwards that, no, that never happened. Um, but it's, again, it's another one of those moments. And again, I can't remember what took place in that conversation, but it was there for exposition. Well, right? It was there so that in that moment and in that, that argument, there is dramatic tension. There's also storytelling being done. And it was it was sort of put in there for dramatic purposes, not because it ever happened. But there was a couple of things that they touched on in that argument that did happen in the book. Um, her concern that nothing was getting put aside for for her and the family, um, mm-hmm. uh, and that that was a conversation that they did have. I don't know if it was a argument like that in the book, but uh, she did express her concerns for that. And I'm trying to remember if if this is right. Was this after he went to Mecca and Cairo and Africa and all that? Um, oh, it was either after or just before. Like it, it was on. It was as things were were kind of shutting down between him and the Nation of Islam. Right. But I don't remember. I, I suspect it was before, um, because I feel like at least in the film. It's pretty quick between when he comes back to when he's assassinated. I'm trying to remember exactly when in the in the movie that was. I do remember the the scene, but not super vividly. Yeah. Um, there was one thing I wanted to talk about. Uh, jumping back to the epilogue a little bit. Mm, sure. Um, and I, I think he might have said this in the movie. Um, like you say, that kind of memory bleed thing, right? Um, but he says to her that uh, he's sorry that he left and he's sorry he was gone for so long and he would never go anywhere without her again. Was that something that happened earlier in the book or was that something that I had watched in the movie and that's why it stood out as something <laughs> I had already witnessed? Do you remember? I don't know. I don't remember that at all. Um, oh, okay. Doesn't mean it didn't happen. I just I can't help you. <laughs> okay. I can't help you sort you out where, where it took <laughs> okay. place. Yeah, I just I, I don't remember that being in the the rest of the book. I think that was a purely epilogue thing, and I kind of remember it being in the movie, but I just at the moment don't hundred percent know. But I thought that was a very touching, touching moment coming from a man who had once said, "I guess I love her now." We have three kids. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. guess I can say I love her, and yeah. then to be like, "I'm so sorry, I left you. I'll never leave you again." If I go on another trip, you're coming with me, right? Like, that was touching. 
I guess, actually, speaking of the movie, there, I've, I've thought of actually one more scene that I wanted to mention that stood out to me. Um, and it's um, early on in the film. And one of the things, when I first actually started watching the film, it, it starts with Malcolm. Well, I guess he would have been like 15 or whatever as he, or 14, because he was, he was young when he was first like in, uh, in New York. Mm-hmm. They don't make that clear in the film. It, no. It feels like, I mean, Denzel Washington looks like he's in his 20s. And I guess Malcolm X looked old too, but like looked older. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in fact, he was quite young, uh, as we discussed at that point in the podcast. And I, but I thought like, oh, we're not, we're jumping into Malcolm like when he's 14 or 15. We're not going to see like his childhood. Um, although they did, they did then, you know, as the film progresses, they jump a few times into his childhood. Um, really only and some in, of those moments. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Hmm? I was going to say some of those those moments were jarring for me too because it seemed like there was one in particular where it jumped back into his past and it it wasn't entirely clear what was going on. Um, and again, it felt like I only the only reason I knew what was un- going on was because I had read the book. Mm-hmm. Um, was there something you were going to say there for a second? Yeah, like uh, it's it jumped back for the fire. Um, mm-hmm. It jumped back a couple of times for his father's death. Yeah. It jumped back for when his mother was taken away and it jumped back for when the teacher told him, you can't be a lawyer. You're good with your hands. Be a carpenter. Yeah. Um, I think that was all the moments. And there was so much about his childhood in the book. Right. And mm-hmm. yeah, I think those are all the moments that it jumped back for into his childhood. In the movie. But I wanted to mention, I wanted to mention the one about the fire because that that moment gets um, kind of doubled up on mm-hmm. when uh, later on in the film, uh, near near his his death, um, Malcolm's home is firebombed, presumably by the Nation of Islam, and um, they they did intercut it with the scenes from you know the fire when he was a, a child, and it it just felt like. Um, it was really poetic the yeah. way they matched those scenes up and as well as just sort of reminding you that this is a guy whose entire existence has been defined by violence. Yes. Yeah. yeah, no, th- that was um, some very powerful imagery for sure. And, and his family, like his, mm-hmm. his family, you know, being sort of haunted by, by violence for generations. And now here he was just like, you know, his father had been trying to protect his own family from, people who were trying to destroy them. Well, and he had been quoted as saying that in the in the book as well. You yeah. know, my life has been defined by violence. My father died of violence, my uncles died of violence, and I expect I shall meet the same fate. Something along those lines. That's a paraphrase. Not a quote, but um So yeah, that was a really really smart way to to kind of visually say that. Yeah. Yeah. So here we are, Malcolm X, followed and haunted by violence his entire life. We've come to the end of his story. How many stars would you give this book if you had to if you had to rate it somewhere? If I had to give it a star rating, yeah, out of five, I give it. Or do you want to have a weird star rating where our total is like <laughs> six point seven three? <laughs> How about a pie rating, three point one four? Um. You know what? And maybe it's just because it's the first one and I'm feeling a little euphoric that we've managed to get this done. And I'd say a five. I would really, really recommend that anybody who is interested in the socioeconomic state of the U.S. right now, that getting this snapshot of 60 years ago and how it was and how, how much things are the same. I think they should definitely read this. And it's a good read. It flows well. Um, I enjoyed it very much. Yeah, I'm with you. I would I would definitely say five stars. Um, I uh, And it's partly because I think other than... I, I'm, I'm not going to say I'm surprised I enjoyed it, but um, the whole experience of reading it has been surprising because I don't know if I would have read it if not for you know covering it for this podcast. And so um, I have been very pleasantly surprised to have had this experience and to have been able to, um, to yeah, learn his story. And, and like you said, too, I think it resonates 
just as much now as it did in uh, 1965. Um, and I think there's definitely portions of it that I, where I found myself thinking like, this book needs to be in schools like today. This needs to be part of, uh, you know, an educational high school curriculum, at least in the U.S. But uh, um, yeah, really enjoyed the book. I don't want to talk too much about um, specifics about the book as a whole, because that's that's what we're doing next time. And next time, uh, I'm very excited. Um, we've talked about it a few times. We're going to be doing a live broadcast. Um, people can come. Listen, obviously, there'll be a chat room. People can hang out in the chat room. Um, we can take calls from people in the chat room. So if you want to get on the mic with us and um, tell us to shut our pie holes because <laughs> you don't like what we're talking about, um, you, you can do that. Um, we're not even going to make you like pay us money to do that. Maybe we'll put that behind a, a Patreon paywall in the future that like, if you want to tell us to, to shut up. You have to give us a dollar, <laughs> but for now you can tell us to shut up for free. Um, or you can tell us you like the, our, what we're talking about, or you can tell us, you know, if you've been reading the book, what you think of it. And uh, we can all have a big old chit chat about uh, the autobiography of Malcolm X. And, uh, and that's going to be on Podbean. Should have been, hmm? that's going to be on Podbean. It's going to be at Podbean. Um, our address is bandthings.podbean.com. Um, it's going to be, I don't know. Can we confirm this right now that it will be, I got to check my calendar. I know I want to do it at two o'clock. That seems like the, like a, a good kind of casual afternoon time, but I don't know. It's going to be on a Sunday, right? Yeah. It's going to be on a Sunday. Yeah. So that would be, uh, Sunday, October 7th. No, that's Saturday, Sunday, October 18th. Okay. Two o'clock. Is uh, I guess now that we're putting in this podcast, it's got to be we got to keep it. We got to do, do it. It's going to be recorded here forever. <laughs> um, I'll probably set up a Facebook event for it as well, and then s put that Facebook event out um, to our Facebook followers. Um, but yeah, two o'clock uh, on October eighteenth. HTTP colon forward slash forward slash bandthings.podbean.com is where we live. You can also reach us uh, by email if you want to at bandthingshappen at gmail.com. Um, and on Discord. Facebook. We are on Discord. Uh, unfortunately, I can't give the Discord link, uh, but uh, we do have a Discord. If you can figure out how to get there, you're welcome to join us and chat. Um as always, please, if you dig what we're doing, um, go to wherever you get your podcasts and uh, like us or leave reviews or comments or, uh, uh, you know, whatever kind of engagement you're allowed to do uh, at your podcast site, do that. Because the more engagement we get, the uh, the better our content can spread. Um, uh, unfortunately, if you don't like what we're doing, I think if you comment it still improves our engagement. So maybe you don't want to comment, but we really wish you would. Even if you do hate us, we want to get all the hate mail too. <laughs> hey, there's um, no such thing as bad publicity, man. No, exactly. To no. spell our name right. It's B-A-N-N-E-D. <laughs> uh, any final words this episode, Mr. Oren? Um, it's just, I was pretty amazed at the, the, the length and the depth of the epilogue. Uh, it was almost like a extra little book tagged on the end. Uh, mm -hmm. very insightful uh, I think a lot of times and maybe I'm just a bad reader I don't read the epilogue I think this might have changed my mind what? on that yeah I kind of like that. Yeah. I finished the story and I'm like okay cool good story no 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 no, no. <laughs> the story's not finished it's like I can understand not reading an afterword oh maybe that's, that's what fine. I'm talking about an afterword okay because you gotta read the epilogue is the end of the story <laughs> oh <laughs> Okay. Jesus. I thought it was just like okay. I thought it was like a PS. You got to go back and find every book that you've ever read that had an okay. epilogue and read that epilogue so that you can go Oh. oh <laughs> that's what happened. Okay, deal. Deal. Okay. Maybe we'll even do um a special episode of the podcast where you know, we'll we'll talk about all of the epilogues that you've read recently and how they've changed your perspective on the book. Oh, that's good. Okay. It's like ending like if what it's like if you shut off Star Star Wars. Yeah. Before <laughs> don't. 
<laughs> no, no, it's, it's shutting off Star Wars after the Battle of the Death Star, but before they all get their awards, right? So you've got the climax, and you probably get the gist of the story, but, you know, you never find out if they get awards, and you never have to wonder why Chewbacca didn't get one. Why didn't Chewbacca get an award, guys? He didn't? He didn't. Assholes. Thanks, everyone, for coming on this ride with us. We've had so much fun so far. We hope you have, too. And we are looking forward to what comes next. Um, hope you're here for our live broadcast in two weeks. If not, we'll see you two weeks from then with the first chunk of our next book. What's that book going to be? I'm not telling you yet. Tune in to find out. This has been uh, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. I am Todd Sullivan. And I'm Oren Barter. And you should go read a fucking book. Take care.